Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And this time we're talking about Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes, which debuted in London in June of 1945, right after the end of the Second World War. A masterpiece of 20th century opera, to be sure. This was the opera that really put Benjamin Britten on the map, wasn't it? It certainly did, and it remains uh, one of the greatest things he ever wrote, and, and uh, certainly the, the one piece of his that remains in the standard repertory of every major opera house in the world, really. The libretto is based on a story from George Crabbe's long poem, The Borough, which describes this town, this small town in the east of England, on the east coast, which of course is very close to where Benjamin Britten himself was born and grew up. A town very similar to Oldborough, which of course became the center of, of all things Britain. And Britten had read this poem actually while he was in America in the early 1940s and had decided that this was going to be his next project. And so he and Montague Slater worked on the libretto and then Britten wrote the music. Peter Grimes is a fisherman. He is, and he is he is the quintessential outcast. I mean, that's really what this opera is about. It's about someone who simply does not fit in, cannot fit in. He is, Grimes himself is so, oh, he's sort of monomaniacally devoted to a particular way of life and a particular way of making a living as a fisherman. And it's a very severe way of life, probably more severe than it need be in, in his case. But he is, he's the ultimate introspective loner. He is a, a fierce individualist. And the town just doesn't get him. <laughs> the entire town. There are, I mean, there are certain people in the town that try to reach out to him and try to help him. But in general, as a whole, the town doesn't get him, doesn't want to get him and, you know, basically turns on him. The opera opens with a prologue, which is an inquest into the death of Peter Grimes' apprentice, a boy who died while he was out at sea with Peter Grimes. And it's a great um, theatrical way of immediately embroiling you in the, in the crux of the drama, you know, what's, what's going to be the, the cross upon which the town you know, crucifies this man. And at the same time, as they call witnesses on Peter's behalf, you have a very, uh, very fast uh, and very effective introduction to all the major characters in the opera. What had happened was Grimes was out fishing with his boy apprentice, and they'd got blown off course and were stranded at sea. And during that time, the boy died of exposure. And when Grimes was able to get to shore, of course, then everybody had to deal with the death of this boy. And so in the prologue, you have the, the local coroner, Swallow, who is holding this inquest. And he actually finds that Grimes is not culpable. That it was an accidental death. However, at the same time, they, they tell Grimes... We're not going to hold you responsible for this boy's death, but but we've got our eye on you. And the next apprentice you get needs to be an adult. Right. The townspeople are not 
too impressed by that verdict, are they? No. They wanted blood, and they didn't get it. As the prologue ends, and we move into Act One, we have the first of these orchestral interludes that punctuate the opera between the acts and between the scenes in the act. And they have taken on a life of their own as well, haven't yeah. they? Yeah, they have. Britain arranged uh, an orchestral performance piece out of simply those, those four scene interludes. And they're done quite often. And they, you know, they really work out of context, but boy, in context... They're, they're really quite brilliant mood and scene setters. What happens then between the prologue and Act One is that you get that first interlude, which is titled Dawn. Here we are at the beginning of Act One. We're at the beginning of a new day. Peter Grimes is getting his boat ready to go out and fish, and he calls for somebody to come help him. But nobody wants to go help him, do they? No, no. Although he does have he does have a few quote friends unquote in town, people who are willing to reach out and help him. And one of them is Ned Keene. And Ned has found him a new apprentice. And it's another young boy. Who is currently in the workhouse. Yes. In the poorhouse. Right. So presumably he's uh, an orphan. And, you know, the, the townspeople are not happy to hear this, but uh, another person in the town that is sympathetic to Peter, Ellen Orford, the school teacher, she stands up for him and says, I'll go with him and I'll bring the boy back. And I'll, you know, she basically is, you know, kind of, kind of offering herself as a, as a bit of a chaperone to, to make sure the boy is well treated. Because everybody remembers what Swallow had said the inquest that from here on out Grimes needed to get a grown-up to help him and not a boy. Yeah. Talk about Ellen Orford and her relationship with Grimes because there is the the hint of a, of a romance or a potential romance there. Yeah, you know, it's it's more of a hint than anything anything real. I mean, it's it's as if at least, at least as, as I perceive it, and this is strictly my opinion, you know, and everybody, you know, every, every one of us comes to these pieces and, and has our own take on it. They're friends. She, she's reached out to him, and she's his friend. And because she's his friend, and because she's a woman... Uh, later on in the opera, we'll hear, you know, Peter talk about her and, and think... You know, he's trying to think of how he can he can improve his standing in this community. How can he win people over to his side? Well, one way he can do it is is through money, but another way he thinks is, well, what if I marry Ellen? You know, then you know I could really, you know, perhaps be seen as as somebody who has a standing in this community, and he latches onto that as as a, a life rope <laughs> to to give him hope. Because in the next scene, he actually talks about this with, with uh, Balstrow, Captain Balstrow, uh-huh. who is a, a merchant seaman. Another uh, one who was sympathetic to Grimes. And he talks about the fact that what he wants to do 
His ambition, Grimes' ambition, is to get this great catch, make some money, marry Ellen, and yeah. settle down and live a quiet, peaceful life. And be happy. Right. Yeah. It's, it's very sad. He's one of these folks that he's always looking for something that can make him happy. It, it really is a tragedy through and through because this is somebody who is so introverted and such a loner. But in fact, he reacts because Balstrode says to him, you can ask Ellen to marry you. You don't have to have this great catch and, and all this money and, and she'll marry you. And he says, no, not for pity. Mm. He wants her to be with him because not because she pities him. He wants to earn her. Right. And that's an example of his attitude throughout the opera, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's, it's on his own terms. Yeah. Through hard work. It's always about hard work. A storm approaches, and they're all in the bore, which is the pub. Yes. Which is run by Auntie. Yes. And her two nieces. Nieces. <laughs> <laughs> who are flooses. Tarts. <laughs> I was being polite. I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> These two nieces, they have no name. They're just known as nieces. Yes. And they almost always sing in unison. Uh -huh, exactly. Which is, you know, and it's interesting because, I mean, this is such a quintessentially 20th century opera through and through. It's, you know, it's clearly written for the English language. Uh, it's very dramatic. It, it stands on its own as a drama completely. And yet there are certain conventions, operatic conventions throughout this thing, like the two nieces, you know, and you think of other, you know, you think of... You know, like the Rhine Maidens, and you think of the, the, the three uh, grisettes in, in Manon, and, you know, the, the three water nymphs in Rusalka. There's precedence for that throughout opera. And then you look at things like Grimes sings this incredible soliloquy called The Great Bear and the Pleiades. And you hear the melody in the orchestra while he intones everything on one note, which, you know, which is reminiscent of Verdi's middle period. That's the big, you know, that's the big innovation that Verdi introduced into opera. And, you know, take the melody out of the voice, put it in the orchestra. So there you've got that. And then, of course, in act three, we've got a mad scene. <laughs> you know, <laughs> much more devastating than anything Donizetti ever wrote, I have to say. I mean, because it's very realistic and very visceral and, and gut-wrenching. Not that Donizetti's weren't, but it, Donizetti's were always within the conventions of bel canto. And this is, you know, Britain's got, Britain can do whatever he wants. He's got a full orchestral palette to choose from. And, and the emphasis throughout the whole of Peter Grimes is on that psychology. Yes. You know, Peter Grimes' psychology. What is he thinking? What's going on inside his his brain? And which is almost the, the, the continual question that the townsfolk are asking. Well, and, and the townsfolk are always, I mean, they're basically, you know, putting the screws to this poor man's psyche throughout the opera. It's almost, it's kind of like what Puccini always did to his heroines. You know, he just tortures them for, for two, three hours until they just break. Right. And that's what happens here. Well, you mentioned now the great Baron Pleiades, that great... Uh, soliloquy mm -hmm. that, that Grimes sings because 
As the townsfolk are preparing for the storm, they're all in the pub, and Grimes comes in. And he's been standing outside all this time in the midst of the storm. Another indication of just how apart he is. You know, he won't even come in. Valsrode tries to get him to come in. Yeah. And as he walks in, of course, everybody quietens Hushes. down. Yeah. They're sort of nervous around him, mm-hmm. anxious around him because of who they consider him to be. Yeah. He's their Boo Radley. <laughs> From To Kill a Mockingbird. Exactly. Ned Keane sort of breaks the atmosphere by starting to sing this round. Old Joe has gone fishing. And then Ellen comes in with John, the new apprentice, and Grimes takes John and heads home, despite the terrible storm. Yes. End of Act One. Yes. have the third orchestral interlude playing between the acts and then we're back in the village and it's Sunday morning and all the good villagers are in church. Right. But Peter's not. No. (laughs) No. And Ellen and the young boy John are sitting outside the church and Ellen's sort of talking to him and kind of drawing, trying to draw him out a bit. And talking to him about, you know, his life before and talking to him about herself and, uh, you know, basically she's, she's trying to comfort herself here is what's happening. She's trying to convince herself that things are different and this is going to work <laughs> and that nothing bad's going to happen to this kid. Because in many respects, she's put her reputation on the line. Completely. By going along with... Uh, Ned Keane's idea of of bringing in another boy apprentice. Right. And she knows that if this doesn't work out, the villagers are going to be, the townsfolk are going to be up in arms again. Yeah. And And this time she's implicated. And they'll turn on her as well. As Ellen is talking to John, she's very disturbed to find that he has a bruise on his neck. Uh Uh-huh. And she worries. And when Grimes shows up, she confronts him about it. And he gets... Very defensive. Very defensive and says it was an accident. And he gets so agitated that he actually hits her. Yeah. And then goes off with the boy. Fortunately or unfortunately... Yeah. The scene is overheard. Right. By Keen and by Auntie and by Bob Bowles. And word starts to spread very rapidly amongst the townspeople. Grimes is at his exercise, they say, which is to say he's at it again. Up to his old tricks. Yeah. How does Ellen react? She tries to defend Peter. She really, I mean, she's upset. She's upset, but she really, really wants to believe in him and wants to believe that she can help him turn things around. Uh, but she's basically shouted down. But then Ellen and Auntie 
and Antias two nieces, they sing of this, the fated relationship between men and women. Uh-huh. And that the women are always going to be on the receiving end of, of the, the anger of the men. Right. But it's a very beautiful contemplative quartet. Uh, and it's w- one of several points in this opera that Britain sort of gives you an aural relief from the tension for just, you know, just a few moments so that it's not just this unbearable tension constantly. The scene changes to Peter Grimes' hut, and he's inside with John and tells John to get out of his his Sunday clothes, his Sunday best, and put on his fishing gear. Right. And then Grimes sort of gets lost in this reminiscence of what happened in the boat with his last apprentice, the one who died. Right. And in the midst of that, he hears the townspeople coming for him. We're talking torches and pitchforks, you know. They're all stirred up because of They want to find out what's going on up there. That's what they're come to do. And But, you know, they're really come to, it's, it's, a, it's a lynch mob. It's almost a lynch mob. It's a lynch mob. And so Grimes opens up this portal in the, in the, uh, the floor of the hut in which, in which they can climb down the cliff to where his boat is moored. He tells the boy to go down before him and to hurry, and he turns to, to listen to you know, how close the crowd is. And while he's turned, you just hear this scream because the boy has fallen, and he's fallen to his death. Uh-oh. Yeah, not good. <laughs> how does he react? He climbs down and gets in his boat and pushes out to sea, doesn't he? Yeah. Gets the hell out of there. Yeah. Um, the irony is that when the mob arrives at the hut, of course, Grimes isn't there, and they poke their heads in and look around, and everything is immaculately neat and tidy, which, of course, allays much of the fear that these townspeople have, (laughs) expecting to see a place that was sort of shabby and in disarray, Uh because that's how they imagine he would live. Yeah, that's the role they've cast him in. End of Act Two. Yes. Then we have the next of the interludes which is called Moonlight. So we've gone from dawn to nighttime in terms of the interludes. And we're back in the town. We're back in the borough. And there's a dance going on. Mrs. Sedley is Mm. trying to convince people, anybody that will listen, that Grimes is a murderer. Murder most foul, says she. Who is she? She's a nosy little busybody, is what she is. <laughs> she's uh, she's a laudanum addict. We get that in the first act because uh-huh. Ned Keane is an apothecary. Yes, and she is trying to hit him up for laudanum. Yeah, so she has her own issues. Oh boy, does she ever! But she's functioning at least, uh, you know, at least as far as the town is concerned. And what's interesting is the way that that Britain constructs these "quote unquote" good citizens, who are so hypocritical. Yes, we have Mrs. Sedley and her laudanum addiction. Yes, we have 
Bob Bowles, who was a fisherman and a Methodist, and yet he enjoys nothing more than getting drunk in the pub and chasing the nieces. Yes. <laughs> and what is so interesting is that this ties in with the whole theme of, of the outsider and how that impulse to demonize somebody is so arbitrary. Because even Ellen says at one point, let she who is without sin cast the first stone. She does. I think, I think that's even in the first scene she's in. That's one of the first things she says. Nobody is immune from any of it. No. And yet there is the moral majority. And the mob mentality. Right. Ellen and Captain Balstrode are talking. They're discussing the fact that Grimes has returned after many days at sea. And Balstrode says he found a jersey washed up on the shore. A jersey that Ellen recognizes as the one that she had she knitted it. for John. Yeah. And that's not good. No. Things no. don't look good for John. No. And of course, who overhears this? Mrs. Sedley. Of course she does. And she then instigates another mob. Yes. To get up and go hunt down Peter Grimes. They go off searching for him, singing, Him who despises us will destroy. Mm-hmm. Boy, will they ever. Then we have another of the uh, interludes, and then Grimes comes on. And, and here's the mad scene. Here's the mad scene. By this stage, he has been pushed to the uh, the brink of his sanity, and he has this long, rambling monologue. And I will tell you, boy, this uh, for a great singing actor, this is just a tour de force. You know, a great Peter Grimes like a John Vickers or uh, an Anthony Dean Griffey can just take this and you you won't breathe. <laughs> What's also interesting throughout. is that <clears throat> traditionally in opera, the mad scenes were all women. But here, mm -hmm. it's not. It's a man. Exactly. And that gives it a different force, doesn't it? It does. Plus, it has it has Britain's twentieth century compositional sensibilities behind it. So you know, there's there are no constraints of bel canto convention. In some ways, there well, are no restraints at all. It's a more modern time as well. <clears throat> yeah. So there there aren't is, there aren't the restraints of tonality that there were for Donizetti. He can use dissonance all he likes, and does. Ellen. And Captain Balstrode come and they, they find Grimes as he's ranting. And the captain encourages Grimes to take his boat out to sea and to sink it. Yeah, with him in it, of course. The implication being, this is not going to end well for you. At least go out on your own terms. Right. Go down with your ship. Yeah. And Grimes leaves. And he does. He does exactly that. The next morning, a new day, and the borough is going about its business as though nothing has happened. Yeah, as if Grimes had never even existed. And then there's a report from the Coast Guard that uh, a ship has been seen sinking off the coast. And no one cares. Nobody cares. Auntie says, that's one of these rumors. It's so weird. Mm. They've achieved what they wanted. They've got rid of Grimes. And... They just carry on as usual. 
It's which brutal. is what they which is what they wanted to begin with. They right. they simply want they want their status quo to remain unchanged and undisturbed by someone who doesn't fit it. Despite all of their own dysfunctions. Exactly. Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening. 